Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 23rd, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. While we endure successive, um, I call it setbacks as policy goes, Science Magazine is reporting that the brand new French environment minister has called our president's energy policy as, and I quote her, although it's in English, not in French, crime against humanity, end of quotes. While California considers the different ways of leading nationally, State Assembly Speaker Pro Tem Kevin Mullen from, uh, that's, he's a Democrat from San Mateo, he will answer all our wide-eyed questions about the legislation in the pipeline to move up California's presidential primary from June until March in 2020. In the second segment, UCI Earth System scientist and let's call him environmental microbiologist, Adam Martini, will post his research on marine bacteria and then his involvement at the university hosts Headwaters to Ocean Water Conference at the Beckman Center today and tomorrow if you're listening live. We'll be right back after a really short break because we got to hear from our speaker pro tem, Kevin Holman, just a wee moment. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is California Assembly Speaker Pro Tem Kevin Mullen. Mr. Mullen represents the 22nd Assembly District. He chairs the Select Committee on Biotechnology and serves on the following committees Budget, Budget Subcommittee Number 3 on Resources and Transportation, Business and Professions, Elections and Redistricting, and Revenue and Taxation. The 22nd district that he represents includes the Bay Area cities from South San Francisco to Redwood City. He earned a bachelor's degree in communications from the University of San Francisco and a master's of public administration from San Francisco State University. In addition, he completed an executive leadership program at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He comes to us today from his Sacramento office and will be focusing on California's legislative measures to move the state's primary from June until March. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Speaker Pro Tem Mullen. Claudia, thank you very much for that introduction. Honored to be with you, Claudia, and uh, pleased to talk about AB 84 and our efforts to, uh, to move up the primary. Yes, thank you. The Los Angeles Times recently quoted Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti as saying, and I'm quoting him exactly, I feel politically California is going to be okay. They're going to do the right things. Their policies are aligned with mine. I'm not worried about California. I'm worried about the country. And so this is part of California either going it alone or trying to bring to bear more influence on the presidential nominating process. And California intends to step up by scheduling an earlier presidential primary. And moving through the pipeline is Assembly Bill 84, also a different Senate Bill 568. It's received bipartisan support mainly to move up the presidential primary, as I said, from June to March. Speaker Pro Tem, could you talk about the kind of influence that you anticipate that California would exert with an earlier primary with respect to both candidates and issues. Well, Claudia, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk a little bit about 
uh, my legislation, AB 84, as well as Senate Bill 568 by Senator Lara on the Senate side. Both bills that are moving have the goal of moving up California's presidential primary to March or even earlier in the process in the case of the Senate bill. And I really think this was born out of a desire to make sure that California counts in the presidential nominating process. There's some history here on this date. It has been moved around in various ways in order to try to make California matter. You know, one out of every eight Americans calls themselves a Californian. We have the sixth largest economy in the world. We have a diverse population. We've got a host of issues that ought to be addressed at the national level. And too often, California is an afterthought in the presidential nominating contest, whereas we believe that California, given its import to the national economy and so forth, we ought to be earlier in the nominating schedule. But also, you know, California can help shape the national debate on issues, climate change, transportation, housing, immigration, issues that Californians deal with on a regular basis, often uh, get ignored in the national nominating process and in the presidential campaigns themselves. So we see candidates when they come to raise money. We're definitely a political ATM of sorts for presidential candidates, given the entertainment sector and the tech sector and so forth. But there really is very minimal engagement by the candidates with voters on issues that matter. Well, historically, California is comfortable, it's ready, and in being a leader in many policy arenas, so it sort of seems like, well, this is the last go, shove here in terms of influencing force to be reckoned with. So I'm glad you mentioned those issues because I'm wondering if maybe if California has ready its own red meat issue, because red meat always gets brought out, especially in the primary. We're hearing it all the way into Riyadh. There's red meat still being introduced, correct? So can you think of, like, what would be the California red meat issue? Well, I think if you're looking for a red meat issue, really, they're kitchen table issues. They're economic in nature. We have a high level of income inequality. We've got a wage gap and a skills gap in our workforce You know, we need the federal government to be a partner. I'm a state legislator, and I think there's a a great deal of pride in having California sort of lead on a a progressive view of government. I think California is sort of moving in one direction, and many states in the union are moving in a different direction, and the national conversation is certainly different than what we're seeing in California. But in terms of, of issues that would resonate and are relevant, I think if you're looking at Issues around mobility and transportation, how people get to work, the traffic congestion, what is the federal government's role in dealing with transportation infrastructure. Affordable housing is a huge issue, uh, not only in my region of the Bay Area where the cost of living is uh, so high and people are being displaced, but also in Southern California, other parts of the state. Issues around higher education and workforce development, how we're going to fill the jobs of the 21st century. These are all things that Californians care about that are relevant, which frankly are often an afterthought when we get to the presidential nominating process. So the goal here is to make sure that candidates are campaigning in California. So my legislation would 
move the presidential primary from its current location in June to Super Tuesday, which is the first Tuesday in March, where a, a number of states would be holding their nominating primary contests. That's really the first uh, national test of candidate strength, that Super Tuesday election day. But if you are aware of what's happening with the way we run elections in California, there really is a move toward voting by mail. So we are actually changing our system. So we're, we're moving to a, a scenario where voters are automatically going to be receiving their ballots in the mail at home, postage paid. We're making it easier than ever before for Californians to cast a vote, unlike some states where they are erecting barriers to voting. We're going to be enabling voters to be casting vote-by-mail ballots as early as the second week of February, which really comes right on the heels of Iowa and New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina are a few of the other early contests. But candidates would really be ignoring California at their peril because millions of votes would be in the bank in February helping select nominees for the major parties. So I really don't see this as a uh, as a partisan issue. We were able to receive a few votes from Republicans uh, in the Assembly, and there were Republican votes for Senator Lara's bill in the Senate. So I'm hoping that this could be one of those issues where both parties come together and, and say, hey, we want to make California count in the uh, presidential nominating contest, which would then set the stage for uh, uh, our relevance and helping shape the national debate every four years during these presidential contests. Well, you've swept through all of the talking points, so I'm going to have you go back and unpackage a few. Just one clarification I wanted to say, since we know there's some confusion, it's just part of the territory, but the primary would be on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of March, correct? That's correct. So that people know that if they see a Tuesday, there's no Mar- the Monday before that, just to clarify that. So, and, and I wanted to know, out of the Senate, it seemed the voting out was a little less partisan than the the breakdown of the the vote on AB 84 and Matthew Harper who represents where this radio station is located had a lot to say about how he didn't think it was worth the money and that kind of a thing was there more of a partisan discussion on the house floor or in the back rooms there was uh, assemblyman harper is the vice chair of the elections committee and i know he represents that area down there he's He's an excellent assembly representative. I enjoy sharing the dais with him on the elections committee. He always has something interesting to say. He did take issue with this bill, and I don't want to put words in the assemblyman's mouth. As I recall the conversation, I believe the assemblyman and some of his Republican colleagues, I assume, have some concern about California, given its size, and difficulty of mounting a campaign in a state uh, the size of California, that we would really be somehow eliminating the prospects for more grassroots candidates who, you know, maybe don't have the money or don't have the backing as some of the, the candidates from larger states, for example. Essentially, by having California so early in the process, I believe the assemblyman is concerned that we would somehow be eliminating those lesser-known candidates from really being competitive. And I would argue that, you know, we're not preempting Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina 
lesser known and lesser financed candidates could still compete in those smaller states to traditional proving ground contests of Iowa uh, and New Hampshire and and in the last cycle, uh, Nevada and South Carolina, smaller states uh, where those those kinds of candidates can compete. By the time California would come on Super Tuesday, candidates would be gathering momentum. And there's a move toward online donations and smaller donations. And candidates can catch fire. We saw that with Bernie Sanders, who started at 1% in the polls and then through a variety of means, uh, was able to generate a great deal of momentum and be competitive uh, in the presidential contest. So I understand where Mr. Harper's coming from. I share a general concern. We don't want to do anything that would eliminate grassroots and lesser-known candidates from competing in the presidential contest. I think by placing California on Super Tuesday, there will be the opportunity for candidates to break out from the pack, so to speak, in some of the earlier contests and really generate a momentum and participate in California's nominating contest and come here uh, not only to raise cash, but to engage in town halls and so forth. There's no question, though, it is difficult for retail politicians, if you will, in California, given its size. But I think candidates would be inspired, given that millions of votes are being cast, that they would come here and try to compete for the the cache of delegates that are available in a state like California. The the cachet versus the cash, as it were, (laughs) right? Yes, that's right. You got it. But it's interesting that he's thinking of other grassroots in other states. He's representing us, for goodness sake. I'm hoping we can uh, up his representation game here on, on our behalf. So another clarification here is that before there was a bifurcation of the primaries, this AB84 and SB568, or no, I don't know about 568. I know for sure AB84 would bring both the state and local primary races on the same ballot on that Super Tuesday as the presidential one. So there, there wouldn't be the extra expense and the delayed scheduling of local primaries in California. That, that's correct, Claudia. So California, as I indicated, has experimented a number of times right. uh, on this on this issue. So we're, we're not breaking ground with a new issue here. But one of those experiments, which was largely, I would suggest, a failed experiment, was in 2008, where yes. we did move our primary, the presidential primary, up to February, given a variety of factors somewhat unique to that nominating contest. California was certainly relevant in the presidential contest, we had 55% turnout, so there was interest, there was excitement around that contest, but it was a standalone presidential primary. And we had a secondary primary for congressional races and state legislative seats in June. Well, that was an example where voters, I really do believe, felt that they had already voted in the primary cycle. And the turnout for the subsequent June Mm, primary for legislative and congressional candidates was abysmal. It was down in the 20s. So we're not going to do that again. We're not going to make that mistake again. We are going to consolidate, at least the goal of the legislation is to consolidate all of the primaries. So you would have the presidential primary, the congressional primary, as well as the state legislative primary races consolidated onto that March uh, Super Tuesday primary contest in presidential years only. Right. Only every four years. 
That's correct. Yeah, we would be toggling back to the traditional June time frame for gubernatorial years, the non-presidential even years. So some folks have expressed a little bit of concern, Claudia, right. about if we move it to March in a presidential year and then back to June in a gubernatorial year, somehow voters won't know what the heck is going on and be totally confused. I give the voters a little more credit than that. I think there'll be so much publicity around the presidential contest. They will know that the primary is coming and is happening. And then June is is something more of a traditional uh, time for primaries. But sort of beyond that being, I think, sort of largely a red herring kind of concern, voters are going to be, over time in California, automatically receiving their ballots at home. So there's going to be very little confusion about an election that is upcoming. If you automatically are receiving, you, you already receive your sample ballot and the ballot pamphlet at home, you'll now be automatically uh, receiving uh, vote-by-mail ballots at home. But that is, that's a reform that is gradually taking effect. A series of counties will be the first-tier counties where there's the automatic voting by mail. That happens in 2020 and another set of counties in 2022. And I wish I had this information at my fingertips. I don't know about Orange County specifically what tier that county is in and what year that will take effect. But essentially, the whole state is moving toward a automatic voting by mail. So voters really will be aware of when these elections are happening because they'll be receiving a ballot postage paid in the mail so they know that an election is coming uh, shortly. Well, those details, I assure you, will be covering. I have an ongoing arrangement with our Registrar of Voters Director, Neil Kelly. He comes on every primary and general election cycle, so we'll, we'll make sure that Fantastic. public and service... If I, could, if, yes. if I could put in a quick plug, oh, would uh, you? Claudia, for Neil Kelly. Yes, do. He is a leader with the clerks and registrars statewide. Right and is a visionary individual. He and Dean Logan from uh, Los Angeles County are the really influential voices in Southern California on these issues. He knows these issues inside and out. And if he expresses concern about uh, issues and legislation that we're dealing with, everybody listens. So I look forward to working with Neil on this issue because whenever you make changes, I'm, I'm not naive about this, whenever you make changes, it triggers challenges for local administrators who are actually doing the work on the ground managing elections. So we want to make sure that our clerks and our registrars are comfortable with the legislation and how we're moving forward. So uh, just wanted to put in that plug for Neil, and we rely on his expertise often. Well, his office gets the link to this one, I tell you. So for those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Speaker Pro Tem, Kevin Mullen. He's a Democrat from San Mateo, California, and we're talking about the legislation AB 84 and Senate Bill 568 to move the California presidential primary up from June till March. That would be a change in schedules only once out of every four years. Well, do you envision that there might be some kind of arms race, Mr. Mullen, with other states also moving up their presidential primaries? That is a concern that has been raised, Claudia, given some of the history uh, when California moved to February. That sort of triggered uh, an arms race, so to speak, of states trying to get in front of California. I think my approach, which is to blend California with the existing set of states 
in the Super Tuesday nominating contest. I think we're largely going to avoid that concern. I am supportive in concept of, of Senator Lara's legislation. He and I are working together. His legislation is a little bit different. They, on the Senate side, are looking at an approach where it gives the governor flexibility to call the election. The default date would be, I believe it's the third week of March, the third Tuesday in March, if I'm not mistaken. But the governor would have the power to actually call California's election so it would be third in the nominating contest. So Iowa would go, New Hampshire would participate, and then California I have a little bit of a different approach, moving it to Super Tuesday, which would allow for the first four nominating contests to happen, and then we would be grouped with a number of states nationally. I don't want to speak ill of the senator's bill because he's doing great work on this, and and Secretary of State Alex would be uh, very engaged in Senator Lars' legislation, and he does support our bill as well. I'm concerned that if we move the primary too early, that it may trigger a national political earthquake, so to speak, that would result in other states moving up. I think uh, a Super Tuesday is sort of a happy medium here where we go early enough in the process that we really make sure that California counts, but we also don't trigger sort of a cascade of states moving up. And then there's always the question of California moves too early in the process. The national party may penalize California by taking delegates away from California. I don't want that to happen. I would like to make sure that we have uh, our full complement of delegates. That would be the goal here. So we're sort of trying to find the sweet spot. I'm biased, of course, but I think our bill is the better approach there. That being said, we're working very closely with Senator Lara and the Secretary of State. I think we'll probably, because you have a couple of bills moving here, wind up with a single piece of legislation that merges the concepts and we come up with sort of the best approach here with maybe a little bit of flexibility for the governor to um, call the primary. But the goal here is the same, which is to move uh, California up to make sure that uh, California counts in the in the nominating process. Well, I, I can just see how the governor, it's like, this is his kind of legislation. It's, it's, a, it's a big institutional move. It doesn't cost him really much money. <laughs> and so I could see what, you know, where this... He'd be very involved in this. So there's a reconciliation then between the two measures, correct? Potentially, yes. Potentially. My bill will be in the Senate uh, Elections Committee. His bill will be in our House in the Assembly Elections Committee on which I sit. So I, I anticipate you very rarely have two bills go to the other House and go to the governor for signature that are, you know, competitive in nature, I really think we'll, we'll be able to arrive at kind of a negotiated uh, compromise bill oh, yes. that moves forward to the governor's desk for his signature. So I'm looking forward to working with uh, Senator Lara, Democrat from Southern California. We'll be able to work out any of the sort of technical differences in the bill and uh, be able to get something uh, to the governor. That being said, we still have these two bills moving. So it's kind of a fluid situation, as many uh, many bills and competing bills are. So the final step is his signature, or does this go to be, is it submitted on a statewide ballot for voter approval? No, the, the final step would be the governor's signature, moving that primary to the, the designated date. And again, 
this would not take effect uh, potentially until the 2020 right. uh, nominating contest. So there would be a few years here for counties to get ready for the change in 2020. Well, you know, college radios all around the state can be dialed up to help out in the public information campaign. So as I tell, you know, when candidates are down here, I always mention that it's a sort of overlooked kind of resource. It doesn't cost any of you any money. So we have a role in disseminating this information. And as I said, we work closely with Registrar Voters Director Neil Kelly. So I assure you with what we and our power that we have, we can certainly help make it very plain and less confusing for the public. So as I always conclude every interview with Neil Kelly, that he and I have this shared fantasy of 100% participation rate. I think, well, let me in on that fantasy if I can. Oh, would you please? I share that 100% participation rate ideal. And I would have to say we, we in California uh, are really moving in a direction of bringing barriers down to participation. Um, we have a number of bills in the elections arena to try to encourage younger people to vote. Uh, we've got a couple that lower the voting age, uh, which is always controversial, but it's a way to get high school kids in their civics classes to participate. The goal here really is maximum voter participation and maximum voter interest And again, by moving the primary up, I think you will generate quite a bit of interest uh, as candidates come through. So we're moving in a direction of inclusion when it comes to voting. Unfortunately, many states with voter ID and other approaches are in the opposite direction, really excluding people from the process. So I'm proud of the work that's being done by Secretary Padilla and others uh, in this elections policy space to try to make sure California is a national leader on voter access and voter participation. Well, as I conclude the interview, I have for you not a red meat issue, but a definite salad bowl, a way of, let's say, linking immigration policy and what people are certain. If, if California is providing for, is it, what, 50 or 9, what percentage of the of the country's salads? It's huge. It's the well, one, one out of every eight Americans is a Californian, so we are a, a But the a nationally, huge... so we were talking That's about right. the red meat, Calif- the, what in the California presidential primary could be the red meat issue, instead might be a green salad, is that if no yeah. one is, if there's not a sufficient labor force because of immigration problems, issues, and policy, that uh, there will be a lot of harvests that don't take place and drive down the supply that we're all demanding. Well, that's right. And immigration most certainly is getting lots of attention at the national level currently under the under this administration and the next administration, I'm sure. That is one of those issues where California is going in a different direction. We have legislation, which is controversial, but it would essentially create something of a sanctuary state status and uh, ensuring that our immigrants uh, are protected and, and families are not being broken up unnecessarily. So those issues are all going to be uh, debated at the state level and then potentially at the national level uh, in the presidential contest. But again, those other issues as well that are, are really uh, crucial to Californians uh, in terms of the workforce readiness, in terms of California being a leader on climate change and cap-and-trade policy and those kinds of things, environmental protection, 
without hurting the economy. All those kinds of things really ought to be engaged in by the national candidates, not just our gubernatorial and and legislative candidates. So that is the thrust behind both the Assembly Bill and Senate Bill. Well, Speaker Pro Tem of the California Assembly, Kevin Mullen, it's been a real pleasure. It's been an honor to have you on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much for appearing today. Thank you, Claudia. Pleasure to do it. We'll be right back after a brief break, and we're going to bring on Adam Martini. He's an environmental microbiologist, and he's going to talk in advance of an oceans conference at UC. I'll be right back. Two's Company album by Eric Applegate. The track is called Maybe Something. Now for the other interview today. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest for this portion of the hour is Adam Martini, UCI Earth System Scientist with research interests in microbiology, environmental genomics, and oceanography. He is monitoring marine bacteria while the rest of us aren't. Adam Martini has won a host of National Science Foundation and Department of Energy grants, and he's affiliated with the International Society of Microbial Ecology, American Society of Limnology and Oceanography, and the American Society of Microbiology. Originally from Denmark, Adam Martini completed his master's degree in chemical engineering and his PhD in environmental microbiology at Technical University of Denmark and postdoctoral research in ocean microbiology at Massachusetts Institution of Technology. He's sitting in with me a day in advance of this week's 15th annual UCI Oceans Initiative and Water UCI Conference entitled Headwaters to Ocean Water Conference. Welcome to Ask Leader Adam Martini. Good morning. Well, let's first have you talk about the research that your Martini Lab does and how it relates to climate change on the global scale. Well, so the main focus of, of the research in my laboratory is on small microorganisms that live in the ocean. Most of these are so small that you really cannot see them with normal equipment and certainly not with the naked eye. So we really didn't know that there are all these bacteria and microbes living in the ocean for so long. But the, in the late 80s and the early 90s, with new equipment, we discovered that the ocean was really teeming with microscopic life. And it turns out that there are so many bacteria. So for example, the one I work on is probably the most abundant photosynthetic organism on the planet. We didn't even know it existed before 1989. And so uh, we're trying to study how these organisms live, both locally but also globally because of their enormous abundance, they really play a key role in how the ocean functions. This is both in terms of there being food for everybody else in living in the ocean, but they're also key in terms of taking up CO2 from the atmosphere and sequester it in the deep ocean. It may not be important in global change situations, but is this, do you have a way of knowing whether this is like one of the most primitive, the, I mean, the most, uh, the earliest of bacteria in existence on the globe? 
actually not. They are fairly sophisticated. So okay. uh, they are not particularly uh, young, and, and as far as we know, it's it's hard to date the sort of origin of various microbial species because okay. they don't leave behind a fossil. But because of their abundance, they probably take up about ten percent of the global CO two uh, fixation. So. They're probably equally important as all trees in North America in terms of uh, how much CO2 is being fixed on a daily basis. So they are quite important for how the CO2 balance in the atmosphere and carbon in the ocean, etc. So they're not to be ignored. Okay, and these are called a uh, prochlorococcus. Yeah, Plucrococcus and Sinicococcus. Okay. I would say uh, being able to name them is sort of like the right of entry to my lab. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I, I almost nailed it. So you're tracking these bacteria all over the world then. So, I mean, your lab is here, but you are out in the world all the time. Yes. So members of my lab, and including myself, we go on ships all over the globe and uh, take water samples that we then bring back to the lab. And then we use sort of modern sequencing technologies like how we sequence the human genome, we're now sequencing the genome of lots of different bacteria in order to understand what is sort of their potential for the types of growth and the, the types of nutrients that they might be able to use in the ocean, et cetera. And so then we're using that to get a fundamental understanding of their biology. So that's sort of the one track of my lab is getting this fundamental understanding of the biology of these incredibly abundant organisms. And then in the lab, we try to doing a lot of experiments to figure out how these genes are expressed and so forth and into their function. And then we go back into the ocean then to test what are they actually doing in the ocean, how much photosynthesis are they doing, who are eating them, etc. So it's pretty demanding that you have to be covering it's such an expansive area where you're pulling up the data. Do you have to collaborate with other labs in around the world? Yeah, I think as probably most modern science. It's yes. collaborative. Yes, so of course. So we work with computer scientists, statisticians, biologists, other oceanographers, etc. So right, right. In other labs around the world, I mean. Yeah. So in Asia, Africa, Europe. I mean, where are those other Mostly in Europe and the United States. Okay. Those are like the big traditional centers for oceanography and marine biology, and, and that's also where most of our collaborators are found. But we also have finished the large synthesis where we work together with people from all over the world, including Africa and Asia, et cetera, to bring together sort of a global view of these microbes. Okay. Well, tell us about some pretty essential trends that you're finding. Well, so I think because we have learned that these uh, microorganisms are so abundant, what has become increasingly apparent is that they really play a key role in how carbon is being moved around between the atmosphere and the ocean. And so that sort of brings us to sort of what is probably the, the biggest issue of our generation is to figuring out what's going to happen with climate change and what, how is that going to feed back onto uh, the ocean, to land, to human lives, etc. And there I think in the past, w microbes are not the first sort of organisms that comes to mind when we no. want to understand how that will play out. But because of their sheer abundance, I think we're increasingly are realizing that they form a key component in how climate change will affect the Earth system. And so my lab has uh, spent the last decade on trying to develop this understanding of these organisms so that we can bring them forth into sort of the conversation about the Earth system and climate change. So for example, 
we have all these models that we base our IPCC assessments on. And, and there- The International Panel on Climate Change. Yes. Yes, okay. And microbes are not part of that conversation right now, but I think it's really important to uh, understand how climate change will affect microbes and how microbes might uh, you know, influence the trajectory of how Earth will be affected by climate change. And so that's a big part of our lab, of making that translation from these sort of microscopic studies to this sort of macroscopic problem. So you said it was discovered, these two were discovered in 1989? Yeah. And so is there any... In the, you've been sequencing them from then on. Is, uh, is there a, a change in their structure since then? Well, I think every day there's evolution going on in the ocean. Right. Including for these organisms. As the ocean is changing, and I don't necessarily mean about climate change. It could be seasonally. It could be decadal oscillations like El Nino. This is going to affect the microbes, who is there, how they grow, and the genome. And so, for example, we saw here in California from 2012 to end of 2015 that the annual ocean temperature went up by about two degrees. Yes. And that had a, that had a big impact on the types of microbes. So essentially, right, you can think of that as evolution of those organisms living there. And we could observe how that really made a big shift in the types of microbes growing in, down in Newport. How about all the junk we're dumping in the ocean? Is that changing them too? Probably. I think that is a, a very undiscovered and undetermined problem. But as you're saying, I just took a ferry from Catalina back to the mainland yesterday. Okay. And I was amazed how much trash I could see floating around in the ocean as, as I made this crossing. It's definitely having an impact on marine ecosystems. And I think that's something we really have to do something about. Yes. <laughs> I, I think of that every time I see... And one more piece of plastic being consumed where it could have been a substitution for a reuse of a certain item. So I'm, it, this is just, this is what keeps me up at night is that consumption pattern, so how it's feeding that. So for those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guest is Adam Martini, Director of UCI Oceans and Professor of Environmental Microbiology. We're talking about his lab right now, and we'll eventually talk a bit about the ocean conference that is being hosted as this is broadcast at UC Irvine at the Beckman Center. Well, I do always tend to ask your Earth System Science colleagues what about the trends that they're experiencing. Is What keeps them up at night? Actually, some of them are starting to get more sleep deprived by the month. So how do you, what keeps you up at night, Adam? Well, so I think there's a sort of a slew of, of changes occurring in the ocean right now, whether it's temperature or the changing pH, uh, the ocean acidification. And then also we see that there are large changes in, in the ice sheets that are bounding the ocean that could lead to substantial sea level rises. And, and the last issue is where you see a very strong interaction between what happens in the ocean and then uh, what will happen on land. So for example, a lot of the ice sheets in both, particularly in Antarctica, but also to some extent in Greenland, is touching the ocean. And so the circulation of the water around these ice sheets has a big impact on how fast they melt because ocean water is, temp is warmer than the ice. Because okay. It's liquid, right? And so if it touches the ice, it will typically bring with it some heat 
and, and lead to melting. So the more ocean water that sort of touches the ice and, and circulates around and under the ice, for example, can have a big impact on the melting dynamics. And so at um, Department of System Science, we have a big program right. studying sort of the interaction between oceans and ice sheets, as this is potentially a really critical issue to understand, because there's a lot of water bound in those ice sheets. And if all of them melted, right, it's, it's like many, many feet of sea level rise. So that's a really crucial issue, I think, both to understand and also to think about, you know, uh, what we're going to do about uh, the sea level rise. And that brings me to a different project that we have ongoing at, at UCI, not in my lab, but within the oceanographic research. Domain. People are looking at sea level rise in Newport and mapping it out street by street to understand how it will impact. And I think sort of that combination of the melting of the ice sheets and, and sort of our lack of local preparedness, I think is a very serious issue for Orange County. I think one really, really has to think about what will be the effect of these ice sheet melting patterns on local communities. I want to get back to that when we talk about what's going on at the Ocean Conference this week, because you'll be moderating a panel that I, I'll find out how local they get with that. So, But I still want to stay with your lab here. Let's talk a little bit about those that are working with you there. It's a really diverse group of undergrad, graduate students, and postdocs. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about them? Listeners might be wanting to know, you know, if they relate to the background that they ought to be signed, because you're on your website, you're inviting people to join your lab all the time. So so tell us a little bit about the folks in your lab. Absolutely, yeah. We have a great group in my laboratory, a mixture of people who already got their PhD, as well as graduate students, and a lot of undergraduate students have worked in my lab. I think nearly 100 now undergraduate students have worked in my lab since wow. I arrived at UCI. And so we always love to have undergraduate student involvement. And so if we stay at that level, some of the undergraduate students, they have been leading this project in Newport, uh, off Newport Pier, where they go down weekly to collect water and then look at what are the algae that are, live there, what is the chemistry of the water, what is the temperature of the water and then develop these sort of long time series that has led us... Uh, How long is long time series for you? Well, uh, 10 years for us. So ten we started in okay. 2007, and that's really exciting. We've learned how both sort of changing between seasons, but also El Nino, how that affects our local ecosystem. And that's sort of the big undergraduate project, but we've also had like uh, computer science students and public health students being involved while focusing maybe on data analysis and some bigger picture analysis. So that's been really fun as well. And then we have uh, a really good group of uh, graduate students from a diverse set of backgrounds. One has an undergraduate degree in mathematics, another one in ocean science, and a third one in marine biology. And so they come with all these different backgrounds, but they're all interested in understanding what is the role of microbes in the marine environment, but also sort of globally. How do they affect the carbon cycle? How will they be affected by climate change and the, and the potential feedbacks on the carbon cycle? And the, the other thing that they really like is to go to sea, go on the long research cruises, and really sort of understand uh, and go out to the open ocean to really understand how that works. So I'm curious if somebody from public health or some of those other fields, or maybe maybe math or, the I don't know how theoretical the math, but do they start to pull into an earth system science career path as a result of working in this lab? I think the students that graduate from my lab, they pick a whole variety of career trajectories. Some become teachers, others work for private companies. For example, I have a, 
an ex-student that works in a genetic testing lab. Okay. Yeah. Whether you sequence microbes sure. or you sequence humans, it's really not that different. And then others uh, go into university careers more like in the science uh, world. So they really sort of take a whole variety of, of careers. One thing we try to, especially for the undergraduates, is to teach them sort of really modern cutting-edge techniques. Yes. And a lot of them can get jobs simply because they can handle uh, these sort of complex uh, new techniques because a lot of companies are always looking for uh, well-qualified people in these areas. And that, my friends, is why funding science, basic or applied, is essential. So, well, I just wonder sometimes if there's a, we're talking about feedback loops in the ocean, but with your staff, is there a feedback loop from what your students from different backgrounds bring into your own thinking? I think absolutely. I think the students can really help uh, you shape how you think, especially when they come with new perspectives. For example, I have this uh, a graduate student with a background in mathematics, and she's brilliant, and, and she's really pushed the lab to think uh, more about uh, new algorithms for how to analyze data. Uh, so that's sort of one example of where that quantitative background can really help you. But I think all of the students, they come with their own ideas uh-huh. and their own uh, novel backgrounds. And I think it's the lab is really sort of the, the bringing all, all those different ideas and skills together and, and pushing forward. And so, uh, yes, absolutely. Wonderful. It really sounds like a, I mean, a pure joy. I mean, everybody's working really hard, but it sounds like there's, there's so much of an interaction and a real collaboration there that gets, gets a lot of jobs done. I would say so. But I would also add that I think UCI as a whole, the whole university, yes. is an incredibly collaborative university. And so more than anything else, I found that that is so much fun to work with people from biology, from computer science from within earth system science different faculty in in a collaborative fashion and so that actually led us to the formation of UCI Oceans which was really meant as sort of a platform to enhance those kind of collaborations so now we're collaborating with people from the law school or from the arts from humanities so that's uh, social sciences uh, social ecology really a wide variety of people are coming together to work on on oceans uh, related issues well, that's a good pivot then. You're the director of UCI Oceans, and that is one of the sort of main sponsors for the the conference that is being presented at the Beckman this week. It's called the Headwaters to Ocean Water Conference. It's the 15th annual. So this year, UCI, I did notice the engineering, policy, earth system science, like yourself, public agency leaders, consultants, nonprofits, and advocacy groups I'm not sure I know anybody from the law school that's on the program. Maybe not this round is that collaboration, but... That's correct. They're not uh, involved this time around. But, for example, we just had a big workshop with the law school on marine protected areas and how you govern those. So they're definitely very involved in in these uh, activities. And they really bring together a unique perspective because you can talk about science all day long, but when it comes to dealing with sort of oceans, environmental issues. And policy. Policy and governance, right, is such a huge part of that equation to figuring out how can you maintain and protect local ocean areas. And and so it's really important to involve the law school. So you'll be moderating a panel entitled Climate Change and Coastal Flood Mapping. And you were just alluding to that earlier when you were talking about your 
team. So there will be on the panel NOAA Restoration Center, Stacy Smith. She will talk about the Southern California Coastal Watershed Wide Restoration Best Management Practices in the Face of Climate Change, and ESA, a Nervine consulting firm, is going to take up flood hazard maps and coastal hazard mapping with future conditions. So could you talk about what you expect will be the takeaway, what's the application for local and perhaps beyond uh, domains? Well, so the, the aim of the conference beyond sort of individual sessions is really to bring together sort of a whole variety of stakeholders going all the way from people thinking about it on a global perspective that could either be academia or NGOs, all the way down to people who are thinking about like a particular city or even a one particular beach that they uh, have a passion for. So it's sort of like this idea of how can we start out with introducing maybe some ideas that people who are thinking about it across the whole world, how are they dealing with ocean health and ocean protection issues. And for example, we have a, a fabulous speaker, Johanna Paulsenberg from Conservation uh, international who okay. will lead off the conference. And then we have a variety of people who are involved on the state level, uh, particularly from the agency side of things, uh, coming from Sacramento. For example, Steve Moore will end the conference from the California State Water Resource Board. And then we have a whole range of stakeholders that are local to Orange County that are thinking about everything from how the wetlands to all the way out to the coastal waters, how that is, how we can come up with ideas of protecting it or figuring out what are some of the environmental issues going on. And so the conference here is really about bringing together all these stakeholders and then embedding in all that the academic uh, research, particularly from UCI, who are sort of trying to think about what are sort of like the bigger issues and what are some of the more generalizable ideas that we can bring to the table. And then we have a lot of these stakeholders who are really into it on a, on a very particular issues. And so it's really about bringing together all these different groups to sit down and discuss what are the, the current problems that are occurring in our ocean right now and what are really the, some of the solutions we can come up with. And so that's a lot of fun and I'm really excited about the conference. And uh, we have a tremendous support from community, both in Orange County and beyond. And so I think we'll be about 150 people going to this uh, meeting uh, starting tomorrow. So I'm very excited about that. So your particular group that you'll be moderating, I'm, I am curious about what the kind of local and the broader application might be for the mapping. Because you mentioned earlier in this interview that your students are taking samples and there's sea level rise is happening. We, we can, with just the, the naked eye, we can see how certain hard structures are getting be, are being overtaken by the, the water level. The sea level is rising. So is there something that's specific that will be talked about in hazard mapping and that with respect to all of those $13 million homes sitting on that sand spit down there? Well, so, yeah, so there's sort of a variety of... of uh, of ways. And again, that's why I think academia can really add to this conversation where, you know, there's sort of the, the flood risk based on tides and particular winds, etc. But then there's also sort of the long-term flood risk due to sort of melting of ice sheets and uh, rising sea level. On one hand, there's sort of two very different problems. But on the other hand, in 30 years, they're going to be very much the same problem. And I think what we learned and we discovered at UCI, right, is that not every 
coastal home is sort of equally much at risk. Right? Okay. It's very much sort of street by street by which there's a risk. For example, there are places on Baboa Island, for example, that are at high risk, but whereas there are other places that are somewhat higher and, and much less risk of flooding. And so by doing these sort of more detailed analysis, we can really sort of help the, for example, the city of Newport in identifying what are sort of the specific risk and help them in their planning because they definitely have a lot of planning to do because there's a lot of homes that are at risk. And, and they're well aware of it and are, are trying to find uh, ways to deal with these uh, risks. So, Well, it begs to be asked or raised that it may be that a particular piece of real estate may not be at risk, but maybe access is already at risk. So if you can't get to your house, then that's you're at risk in that respect. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, different types of risk when it comes to sea level. <laughs> yes. Right. One is is the risk to a particular home, uh, w- which is probably the one that w- we traditionally think about. But then there's also the risk to beaches. Right. right. If we want right. to build a seawall, right, then the water is going to go up to the seawall, and meaning that there will be no beach in front of the seawall. And so we really have to think about this risk and what we do about it, because it would sort of be hard to imagine Newport without a beach. That's such an integral part of, right. of what we think of as Newport resource. Beach, uh, having a beach. And so so the types of solutions, right, really has to think about a lot more than, than just protecting particular properties. I think an, another area is the, the back bay, yes, right, where that's also vulnerable to sea level, right, where we have this wonderful marsh, right, and it would be a tremendous loss, right, if we didn't have that uh, with all the birds and, and sea life, et cetera associated with that. So there's sort of a wide variety uh, of risk. And that's why UCI being this really large institution with a lot of intellectual capacity can really help individual cities with, with thinking about not only sort of what, what's going to happen next year or two years ahead, but also can we think about long-term planning so that we don't stand 20 years from now and have to make some really radical decisions. Well, I'm going to drop in on and soak up as much of these rays as I can, and I'll be seeing and talking up the media that's going to be there and see that they follow through on broadcasting, literally, figuratively, what they see. Well, I thank you for your time coming down to the studio today, Adam. It's been a pleasure hearing about your all your work today. Thank you. That was Adam Martini, UC Earth System Scientist and Director of UCI Oceans. He'll be moderating at this panel, the Headwaters to Ocean Conference. Well, that's a wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on the show Paula Lubin. She's a public health PhD candidate at UCI whose research focuses on war and public health. And in the second segment, we'll go behind the scenes with the newest member of the Irvine City Council, Melissa Fox. I'm going to ask her hard ones, folks. So if you have some questions for me to ask Melissa Fox, my email's C-S-H-A-M-B-A-U-G-H at KUCI.org. Talk to you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. M'a filé une beigne, j'ai filé une mandale, m'a filé une châtaigne, j'ai filé mon futal. La morale de cette pauvre histoire, c'est quand t'es tranquille et peinard, faut pas trop traîner dans les bars, à moins d'être fringué en costard.